Corinthians in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. I'll pick up at verse 11 through 14. It's on page 957 in the Blue Bible. 1 Corinthians 10 is uh, very simple. Paul begins by saying, our forefathers, our forefathers in the wilderness were baptized, very similar to us, through the Red Sea and the cloud. And they ate the same sacramental meal, the same spiritual bread and the same spiritual drink that is Christ, who was the rock, who was following them. And yet they fell. So starting at verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's the repeated falls of our forefathers, so that Paul then comes to verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And now he tells you one of those ways of escape that God gives you by his grace so you can endure it. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So keep this passage in the back of your head. And now we turn to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21. I think the back of the, the, the sermon notes say something else. But it's supposed to be 1 Chronicles 21, which is page 350 in that blue Bible. And you want to keep your Bibles open there. Now 1 Chronicles 21 actually happened several years after chapters 17 through 20, but remember, the, chron- the writer of the Chronicles is economizing, and so he's just taking stuff out from in between, and it feels like these things happen right on the heels of each other, but there is some space in here of several years. So remember, all of the successes that God has been doing for David, remember how he has been subduing his enemies, been making his name great, giving his people, God's people, a safe place to dwell, and so forth. And now comes chapter 21. Then Hashatan, the Satan, the adversary, stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David tells Joab and his commanders of his armies to go out and number all of his, basically it's his fighting force. I want to know how strong we are as a fighting force. And Joab doesn't like it. His commander didn't like it. But Joab goes out grudgingly and does what he's told to do, but not completely. He leaves out the Levites and the Benjamites. Because Joab is not happy. The end of verse 6, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing. And he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, that I have done this thing. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And so David begins confessing his sin. God sends his prophet Gad to David and says, look, there are consequences to our actions. You have three choices. You can have three years of famine. You can have three months of running for your life as your enemies come after you. Or you can have three days of pestilence. Of pestilence. And so David says in verse 13, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And so Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. 70,000 of his fighting force that had been numbered fell. 
That's 4.5% of his fighting force died in a three-day period, which is shocking. And so then David sees the consequences of what's happening. He sees the angel of the Lord that's standing now in Jerusalem right there at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David comes and the elders come with sackcloth begging forgiveness. Verse 17. And David said to God, what is, was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Yahweh, my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. And now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word which he had spoken in the name of Yahweh. So Ornan is there. He's hunkered down, terrified because he sees the angel of the Lord. His sons are right there next to him, four of them. They see the angel of the Lord. They're horrified. And then comes David. They run out and they say, what can we do for you, O Lord, our king? And David says, I need your land. I need your fleshing floor. I want to buy it full price. No, you can have it all. I'll even give you the oxen. I mean, imagine Ornan was horrified and terrified all at once. But David says, verse 24, King David said to Ornan, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for Yahweh what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to Yahweh and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on Yahweh. And Yahweh answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar burnt offering. Then Yahweh commanded the angel... And he put his sword back into his sheath. And it explains why David didn't go to the tabernacle because it was too far away and so forth. Then comes chapter 22, verse 1. Then David said, here. There at the fresh floor, threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite where the altar was just set up. Here shall be the house of Yahweh God. And here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. What I read to you from 1 Corinthians and what I've summarized and read for you from 1 Chronicles 21 into 22, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Yahweh Shalom, Lord our peace, we come longing to hear you this day. Remove, remove all that will keep us from hearing and prepare us to receive your refreshing word with joyfulness and gladness of heart for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting and don't know, on the back of the worship guide is, is the sermon outline with lots of no, uh, space for notes. By the way, I did put several of the references, scripture references that I'll be pointing out. They are also in the sermon notes, so you can have them for the future. And then there's questions at the end. I want to tell you a story. It's a true story about two men, two pastors. I'm changing their names. One is going to be called Joe, and one is Chaz, C-H-A-Z, Chaz. Well, long ago, when I was in another presbytery in a different time and space continuum, that presbytery had a minister who was, asked, who was tasked by the presbytery to visit other pastors and their wives to check up on them, just to see how they were doing, to see how the, their relationship was going, to see if there were other things happening, and so that was his, his task, we'll call, so I wouldn't call his name Joe. 
He was not the most dynamic of people. And he was pastoring a church that was not very dynamic. It was dwindling, as a matter of fact, and had been dwindling for many, many years before he had become the pastor there. And yet this pastor strove to fulfill his presbytery work with diligence and grace. And so during one of the presbytery meetings, we had to refund him every year. So in one of those presbytery meetings where there was a debate, just, just nothing mean debate, just debating about how to best finance Joe... Another pastor walked up to me. His name was Chaz. I'll call him Chaz. His name was not Chaz. I'll call him Chaz. He was a pastor of a much younger church. He was a pastor of a church that was growing and bursting at the seams. It was a a very potent church in the sense of numbers and things that they did and so forth. And so Chaz walks up to me from that church. And he says under his breath to me, And this is almost verbatim. I don't need that guy to tell me how to pastor. He's a loser, and he's a pastor of a loser church. What can he tell me? Well, I was stunned. I was stunned by that arrogance. Oddly enough, within a year, Chaz was exposed by his wife as having an emotional affair, a just just too unhealthy of a relationship with a woman in his church, in his burgeoning church, that went almost all the way, an emotional affair. She exposed him for having an emotional affair with one of the women in the church. Well, while Chaz was being disciplined and going through that whole process, who do you think it was that was next to him through the whole process, praying with him and his wife, comforting them, guiding them, and walking with them? It was Joe. I thought, as I watched this whole thing happen over a year, I thought then, I said, hmm, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. And it was a valuable lesson to hold on to. So I want you to keep that scene in mind, loosely at least, as we work through this episode here in 1 Chronicles 21, an episode that seems to me clearly be about pride and the fall and God's surprising habit of giving beauty for ashes and the oil of gladness for mourning. So verse 1 is the drop, David's drop. Okay, So notice how this, this shocks us a little bit. After all of the successes, all of the achievements, all of the heartwarming feats of chapters 14 through 20, after God drawing David close, God preserving David, God subduing David's enemies, God building David's dynasty, making David's name great, providing for David's people a secure place. After all of these things and even more, everything comes to a crashing, break-screeching halt. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And what exactly was David's problem? Well, it doesn't say what it was specifically. So let me come at it in about three or four different directions. Don't, don't get lost here, but there's reasons to go this way. The same episode is rehearsed over in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. If, you've got, if you want to write that reference down, 2 Samuel 24, 1. There it says this. The anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them. 
Some hear these two passages and say, what? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? Yahweh was angry and did this? Satan did this? What? Who did it? Yes. Has anybody read Job? Right? I mean, who's in control in Job? The Lord. Who's being tested? Job. What instrument does, does Yahweh, does God use to test Job? The Satan. Anybody ever read Isaiah 10? Where God talks about the Assyrians, a horrible, rotten nation. And he says, Assyria is the instrument in my hand by which I am disciplining my people. And when I am done with that, I will break Assyria. Did anybody remember that story? If you didn't, go read Isaiah 10. So I think that's how you pull together. 2 Samuel 24, 1. And 1 Chronicles chapter 21. The Lord is over all of this. He is testing David. He has something against Israel. Something has happened. And so he uses the adversary, Hashatan, the Satan, to incite David. And so as God is testing David and allowing the adversary to incite David, what's probably the most criminal here, really is the most criminal, is the fact that David listens to Satan. He incites David. That means David, and then then David acts on that. That means David listened. He listened to what the evil one was saying. Now I think you need to hold that close to your heart for a minute because it's at this point you scratch your head and you probably are thinking in your head, David, why, how could you do that after all the wonderful things that God has done for you, how far he's brought you? How could you listen to the adversary? What were you thinking? Anybody ever said that to their kids or anything? Yeah. Well, my friends, let me give you a Greek lesson just for fun. I know this is written in the Hebrew, but in the New Testament... There is a prominent Greek word that is often translated as iniquity. It is anamas. A is ah is not or no, and namas is law. No law, lawlessness. It's what John is referring to in 1 John 3, 4. All sin is anamas, is lawlessness. What's interesting is that the Greek word anamas is where we get the word anomaly from. Sin is an anomaly. It is not normal. It is aberrant. But it's part of our lives. It has been for generations. But it is an anomaly. What does that mean? Well, I want you to think back. Don't say anything to anybody because I don't want to incriminate anyone. But think back to one of your most recent sins that you don't want anybody to know about. See if maybe you might not think this through with me and go, oh, yeah. At the time that we're being tempted... And the time that we act on our sin, it all appears to be, it goes along with some kind of inner logic. It all makes sense, right? Do you remember, do you remember that sin when you were sitting there and you were being tempted and you were convincing yourself you were entitled or you had a right or no one else will know and I really, you know, I've been having a stressful week and I just, right? You reasoned within your own head on that sin. You used an inner logic. At least it looked like an inner logic. But then once you caved in, and once you stepped back, you probably did this. If you didn't, you should. Because I do it all the time. Ah, what was I thinking? 
And the little voice in the back of my head says, you weren't. That's what David's doing. He's not thinking, right? There's an inner logic to it. It makes sense to him at the moment. But you notice not too long after this, after he's done the deed, he goes, what was I thinking? Do you get it? So David's drop, that anomaly, the sin is an anomaly. So let's take a peek then into David's deed. It's really in verses 2 through 6. And what does he do? He numbers his fighting force. That's the census. It's the men whom he will basically have as his fighting force. And it's like, a, it ends up being a million five hundred thousand men, which was pretty phenomenal. The problem is not that he took a census. There's no problem with taking a census. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 through 16, God demands or commands a census for the purpose of, of uh, uh, setting up the redemption tax. That's what it was called. It was a redemption price, redemption tax on the firstborn. But there was no problem. God actually commanded it. You go to Numbers. Does anybody know how many times God commands a census in Numbers? Anybody want to say two? Good. Yes. Excellent. One at the beginning of Numbers and one at the end of Numbers. There was no sin or crime in the census. Well, what was the problem with this census? Think about it. He's numbering his fighting force. Even Joab is pushing, his, his own commander-in-chief is pushing back at him. You don't need to do this. You have a very subtle hint that starts kind of showing up more and more that the motive behind David's census was not the action itself. It was either it was arrogance or it was arrogance. It was one or the other. He was being arrogant. Why, look how, look how big I grew this church. Right? That kind of arrogance. Look how big I got my fighting force. Now we can, we can go out and whip the bad guys. I got all this. I did all this. I mean, it's that kind of thinking. There's David's deed. My friends, the Lord has a few things to say about human arrogance. In Proverbs 16 and verse 5 For everyone who is arrogant of heart, everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination to Yahweh. Be assured he will not go unpunished. What's interesting is that that word, that Hebrew word abomination is toavah. If you want to know how reprehensible pride is, that word abomination is used over Leviticus 18 and 20. Set aside for one particular sin and then... Something else beyond that, but it's one particular sin. When a man lies with a man as with a woman, it is toavah to Yahweh. Pride is just as reprehensible to God as is a man lying with a man as with a woman. This, this, this is big. God has a few things to say about pride. Our Lord Jesus, you read it in the law. Our Lord Jesus has a few things to say about pride. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. It's like the minister counting the numbers of his burgeoning congregation and deciding from that strong position. He doesn't need anyone of lesser import to teach him or care for him. Or it's like bloggers and podcasters and talk show hosts who can count all their ratings and all their advertising revenues 
And then they start getting this big swollen head. And then they start actually believing their own press releases. I know everything. You don't just need to believe what I have to say. And you go, wow, that's pretty arrogant. It is. This deed of David's was so stinky that crusty old Joab, I find this really kind of humorous. Joab was no epitome of virtue. He was David's henchman general, right? He killed people and had quite quite a lot of pleasure in it, right? His whole worldview was pragmatism. So the fact that stinky old Joab, that this was stinky to crabby old Joab is pretty pronounced. The end of verse 6, it was abhorrent to Joab. Pretty bad when one of the worst guys in your army thinks it's a bad idea, right? And so then came the divine disaster. And that's verses 7 through 17 comes the divine disaster. As important as Joab's disapproval is of David's deed, what's more important is God's assessment. And it's verse 7. God was displeased. In fact, verse 7, but God was displeased with this thing and he struck Israel. Verse 7 is actually a synopsis of everything you're going to read starting with verse 8 through 17. It's a summary verse of what's about to unfold. And so here in this looming divine disaster, at this moment when David has stepped back and he realizes what he's done and he smacks his head and he goes, what was I thinking? God comes on the scene with his prophet Gad. Yahweh's displeasure arouses in David, rightly arouses in David. A growing change of heart. And this growing change of heart actually comes in three waves. First off comes David's initial confession. It's a a fairly general confession down in verse 8. Well, I did a thing, or this thing, or whatever. It was kind of a broad general confession. And then he says, at the end of that, I acted very foolishly. Well, he's moving in the right direction, but that's as far as it went. That was the first wave. Now, my friends... There are consequences to our sins. So there were consequences to David's sin. He's given three options. Verse 11 and 12. Three years, three months, or three days. You pick. And that threefold or three option consequence then evokes from David a second confession of sin that includes humble perplexity, but also an acknowledgement of God's mercy. It's down in verse 13. Notice, it's a very subtle second wave of confession, but notice it. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. I say it's a confession of sin, because notice what David doesn't do. He doesn't excuse himself, and he doesn't say God is at fault. Right? He owns the fact he did do something wrong and actually deserved consequences. Are you listening? That he actually deserved consequences to his wrongdoing. That's a very subtle confession of sin, but it starts here. This is the second wave. And in this confession of sin, he acknowledges his humble perplexity. But notice he acknowledges God's great mercy. I'd rather fall into the hands of the Lord than fall into my neighbor's hands. Anybody ever heard of total depravity? I think David just hit it on the head. 
I'd rather fall into the hands of Yahweh, who is merciful, than the hands of my fellow humans. What an interesting statement. But then comes the consequence. And the consequence, verses 14 through 16, is three days of plague that ends up wiping out in three days 4.5% of his fighting force. And that sounds like a small number, but then if you were living there and it happened in three days, you would see carcasses everywhere. Right? It'd be up and down the street, down in the neighborhood, over in the borough, and you'd see them everywhere. It was shocking. It breaks David's heart. He begins to see then his actions actually, the consequences of his actions now are falling on his people and it brings out of David the final wave of his confession of sin. And it's down when you get to verse 17. Was it not I who gave the command to number the people? Now he's specific. Now he's specific. It is I who have sinned and done great evil, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Yahweh, my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Notice how specific it is, and notice that there's no blame shifting. I'm going to date myself. He's not standing up there like Flip Wilson. That devil made me do it. Right? There's none of that. There's none of, well, I made a poor little mistake. There's just none of that. Well, I wouldn't have done it if, if it hadn't been the, the, the uh, Amorites over there on the other border and I was a little worried about it. He, he doesn't shift the blame in any way. He owns his own sin. That's what makes his confession here. The third wave, you know you've reached the point. To put in the words of our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15 and paragraph 5, David is... Endeavoring to repent of his particular sins particularly. David is confessing specific sins specifically. Now that's extremely important. You know, when we have our public confession of sin, that's why there's that moment of silence before we all join in with the confession of sin. So that every one of us has a moment to actually say, oh... Let me get a little specific here, Lord. Here's what I did wrong. Don't confess your wife's sins. I'm talking about yours. Don't confess your husband's sin. I'm talking about yours. That 30 seconds, one minute of silence is for you to repent of particular sins particularly. And then we join together saying, yeah, we're all in the same boat and we all need Jesus the exact same way. When you have a marital problem... Or you have a relational problem, you've got to do the same thing. Whatever you do, please do not. If you've got some problem going on and you finally decide, well, I'm going to ask forgiveness, please do not say, hey, forgive me for whatever I've done wrong. Okay? Because what I just told Caitlin is I've really done nothing wrong, so there's nothing for you to forgive me for. I need to be specific. I one time had a spat with someone in my family, not living with me now, so it's okay. She's all right. She's and it was, a, it was a total misunderstanding on her part, but I got it, I understood. But I was furious because I was being accused of something again from the same person in our extended family. And I blew up. If you don't know, I'm hot-headed. Does anybody not know that? I'm going to tell you, I'm hot-headed. And I just snapped. And I laid out 
all the facts and all the evidence, and I laid it out like this. You know what I mean? Right? I was just fuming. It takes me about three hours to calm down. It took me about three hours to finally get my head on straight. And I finally realized what I said was not the sin. It was the way I said it to her. And I went to her and I said, look, I am so sorry that I blew up at you. I am so sorry that I, I shouldn't have done it this way. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And she did. I really appreciate that. And so that's the other side of this, by the way, is a side lesson. When someone asks you to forgive them, please do not say, it ain't nothing. They're asking you to release them from a debt. Say to them, please, for the sake of Christ, who forgives you specific sins specifically, say to them, I do. I forgive you for that sin. I forgive you for that. You have no idea how freeing that actually is. So David's third wave of confession of sin is very specific. It's particular sins particularly. It's a confession of the wrongdoing that is very specific regarding David's own fault, and there's a plea with it. Notice again, he doesn't say, I didn't deserve this. He's owning it. I deserve the consequences, not them. It's the kind of confession of sin that goes along with what David once wrote, probably around this time, maybe before or after, but it's Psalm 69, verse 5 and 6. You might want to write that one down. In fact, I would encourage you to memorize these two verses. Psalm 69, verse 5 and 6. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I've done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Oh Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. So there was David's deed in the, in the divine, whatever the third point was, divine something rather. Divine disaster. Thank you. Somebody was listening to the sermon. So now we come to the deep deliverance, and it's in verses 18 through the first verse of chapter 21. Two. Notice that the angel of Yahweh is involved. The angel of Yahweh is the one whose sword is drawn here at the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. It's, it's the angel of Yahweh. And those of you who are theologically astute realize that means this is Jesus Christ, our Lord, before he became fully human. When we confess in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He is the judge. It's very fitting that he's the one who's here at this place. And so here the angel of the Lord stands between earth and heaven. And he is drawing together God's fitting justice. God's fitting justice with God's undeserved mercy. He is drawing together, verse 16, 18, and 20, is drawing together God's fitting justice with God's undeserved mercy. And by the direction of the angel of Yahweh, who stands there at the crux, who stands there at the crux of fitting justice and undeserved mercy, the angel of Yahweh 
there, does this. He makes, the, the way is made, verse 18, for forgiveness. Verse 24, the price is paid. And then verse 20, chapter two, uh, 22, verse 1, the path is laid. And this place where all of this happens here at the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite becomes crucial becomes a central location then for God's future temple where all of God's people will come to the meeting place of heaven and earth of God's fitting justice and God's undeserved mercy. And there they will seek the face of God. The temple will become at this place the sacramental reminder of the presence of God there at the crux of justice and mercy, and how God made the way. How God made the way into his mercy. In fact, the Lord clears the path out of his anger to forgiveness. And it's that altar, verse 26. And you know that this is God's doing it and not human innovation. Because in verse 26... Something comes out of heaven. Anybody remember what it was? The fire of God consumes the peace offering. David is now at peace with God. Think about it. The one who burned hotly against his people and against David now pours out that fire on their pricey, costly substitute. And so this place and this altar would always point to this monumental truth. You come to the place of God where God comes together with his fitting justice and undeserved mercy and he makes a way for us into his mercy. It becomes a memorial stone. We sang in the hymn just a minute ago, here I raise my Ebenezer. And most people don't, know what an Ebenezer is. But in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it's a stone of memorial. God has helped us to this point. It's a memorial stone. And so we sang in that hymn, and it's exactly the picture of the temple and the picture even of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is right there at the crux of fitting justice and undeserved mercy. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger... Wandering from the fold of God, he who rescued me from danger interposed his precious blood. If you don't believe the song, how about believe in St. Paul? In Romans chapter 5, put it this way. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, we have been declared right with God, we have been put on God's good side by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled. Shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, we also rejoice in the Lord in, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
The temple is pointing to Jesus because Jesus was there at the founding of the temple, right there at the crux of God's fitting justice and his undeserved mercy. And he makes the way for us in deeper into the mercy of God. And it's all by grace alone. It's all found in Christ alone. And it's all received by faith alone. And the temple and this place begins to point in that direction. Surely, dear friends, you read this story and you realize, ah, the Lord delights in turning ashes into beauty. Oh, yes. His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We may go out weeping, but by the grace of God, we come home with shouts of joy. And that's the rest of 1 Chronicles, chapter 22 through 29. David returning now with shouts of joy and all that goes into building the temple at this place. Well, my friends, this whole scene, the value of this whole scene should have been clear. And I think it was, I would imagine it was pretty clear to Israelites in the middle fourth century as they're slinking and slouching and scuffling their way back out of exile into the land and it should be clear to us for example if David dropped flopped and miscarried for all the blessings that God gave him for all that God's presence had meant to him if David dropped flopped and miscarried so can you so can I so can we. And that's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands. That's the height of arrogance. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the height of arrogance. I got this. The serpent can, the Satan can whisper all day long, try to incite me, I got this. It's the height of arrogance. And my friends, if you don't know, if you've never experienced it, speaking from experience, I can tell you arrogance will bring you down. Arrogance will throw you to the ground. Arrogance will shove you into dark places. If David could fall, so can you, so can I. But further, my friends, as you read this passage, as you go through and dwell on this episode, notice that my sin rarely affects only me. My sin rarely affects only me. Dear friends, do not let the evil one or your own conniving hearts succeed in whispering that lie to you. Oh, nobody will know it's a private sin. It's just between, it's just your sin. You get on that computer and you're looking at pornography. You are hurting other people already. The woman or the boy or the guy or the kid or whoever's in that picture. Some of them are actually being sex trafficked. They're not there by their own free will. And those who are, you're just simply funding their self-destruction. But I'm going to tell you another thing. It impacts the way you look at your spouse. It impacts the way you will look at your co-workers. Your sin, as private as you think it is, it ain't private. It has consequences. 
And it will impact others. Never give in to that lie. All of our sins, greater to a greater and lesser degree, ripple outward and impact others. But finally, dear friends, we must come to the place where we own our own sin. And we don't shuffle it off onto the backs of others, making excuses. When you come to the place where we can be like David here and join David's regenerate sensibilities. Was it not I who gave the command to do this thing, this sin, to number these people? It was I who sinned and has done this great evil. Ah, but there's good news in this story too. Not only the crux there of where the angel of Yahweh is right there where God's fitting justice and undeserved mercy come together and he makes the way and all of that. That's good news. But chapter 22, verse 1, as it begins to break open into the rest of First Chronicles, shouts big news, great news to us. Like this. God can take any catastrophe you concoct. God can take any cataclysm you cook up. God can take any collapse that you've... I forgot a C word. I lost a C word. Anyways, that you made, that you've brought upon yourself. He can take those and he can turn them into Ebenezer stones. Memorial stones. Hither by thy grace I've come. A joy-filled roadmark in our lives of a new, this new adventure he has given us, this new day, this new way, this new freshness, a roadmark for us to always look at and look back and say, oh yeah, God's steadfast love endures forever. Look at the great things he can do, even with losers like me. He really can. As you heard in the call to worship from Isaiah 61, he really can grant to those who mourn to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So that we're called oaks of righteousness. We're called the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And it's that graciousness of our God that lies behind the invitation that we'll run up to when we get to Second Chronicles at some point. In chapter 7, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, promise, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal the kingdom, heal the land, heal the church. This is what's the backbone to that promise. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we come to you. We come with some particular sins in our heads that maybe we didn't own up to particularly. We come to you knowing that and acknowledging to you that your your ways are amazing, grace ways. Lord, we pray that you would help us and grow us in in endeavoring to repent of our particular sins particularly.
Help us to walk on and give us memorial stones. Give us Ebenezer stones. And may we not sneeze at them, may we not discount them, but always look back at them and lift up our heart in praises to you. Lord, thank you for this episode. Thank you for what it reminds us of. Thank you how it even points us to our Lord Jesus Christ who stands there at the crux of fitting justice and undeserved mercy and he makes the way open deeper into your mercy. And so I pray for anyone here right now who has never embraced your son Jesus Christ that you would be working on their hearts and draw them to you. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray for any grieving and hurting thinking about things in the past. That you would exchange their, their ashes and give them a beautiful headdress. That you would exchange their mourning and give them the oil of gladness. In Jesus' name, amen.